0: Hey, everybody. David Kern here. Before we get to today's show, I want to let you know about some great books that you might be interested in. If you would love to read classic literature like Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, Frankenstein, and Jane Eyre with a helpful, trustworthy guide, then Karen Swallow Pryor and her new series with B&H Publishing Group might be a great option for you. In that series, she navigates through the pitfalls that trap readers today and shows you how to read those books in light of the gospel and to the glory of God. Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness are available wherever books are sold right now, with the other books in the series coming in the spring and fall of 2021. You can learn more at bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. That's bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics, or you can get copies of those books wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined, as always, by my old friends, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thank you, David.
1: It's terrible, David. I'm having a hard day because of these moths that are invading us. It's like 8am. We're on the migratory pattern of the Miller Moth, which as the Miller <laughs> Moth is its adult name for the it's army...
0: Its, adu- it's its adult name? <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, about well, fully grown name. I, I'm a literary person. I don't know. Like yeah. Names of <laughs> wildlife.
0: science stuff? It's called
1: the army cutworm is its like whatever, larval name. And you're so, being, that and you're being invaded by this. than Miller Moth. So anyway, we have thousands of them. We live in the woods and we have just thousands of them enveloping our home in a cloud every day. It's like the walking dead around here. So
2: they're, nice hiding, to, they're migrating? Yeah. From, from where to where?
1: That is a really good question. And from one side of the Wikipedia yard to the other. Open right now, I would tell you... Um, I, I have no idea. But they just fly their way across the country. And so, we'll have a peak season of them for about two to three weeks. And we're about three or four days into it. So, they'll be here for another week and a half. Oh. So, so
0: this, is a, this is a recurring thing. You, you've been through this before.
1: Yeah. But this is a big year for them. I was just looking it up this morning. I'm like, why are there so many of these moths? So I, it's like the
0: cicadas in the south.
1: Yes, it is like that. So it has something to do with some kind of naturalistic something people know about that I don't know about. There's some reason that, <laughs> that we had know about other is it, things. Is it the virus?
0: Thing.
1: Who knows? It feels like it. Like the murder hornets and the mob, the army cutthroat worms, and
0: the COVID. our pets' heads are falling off.
1: Our pets' heads are falling off. So
0: that might yeah. be a movie reference that like half the people know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's from Dumb and Dumber. It's great. So
2: I'm, I'm just imagining, like these moths kind of circling up before they start their migration, and and one of them's like, "You guys, this is a big year for us." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is our okay. Year. Listen, this, this is, our year is our eighth year, and we minute. listen. We got to migrate to Heidi and Scott's place, and we got to do yep. it now. I feel in like that's force. what's
0: happening. It's guys, we've been preparing for this for years literal whole just, life. Y- just yesterday we were army cutworms look <laughs> at us now
1: i really like the voice you're doing
2: <laughs> that's yeah, my moth too. voice yeah, no I it's great
1: too. yes it's pretty awesome and it feels <laughs> like these are the kind of moths that have that voice and they're probably
0: drinking kind of hard smoking voices yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. <laughs> right so they got
0: their they got their yeah. campers circled up like a wagon train
1: Yeah, they're like tailgating. So we just want them to leave.
0: Get off my land.
1: Get off my land. I'm shaking my pitchfork and it seems to be doing nothing. So,
0: (laughs) I would imagine that stabbing a moth with a pitchfork would be quite a challenge.
1: I would do it in a hot second. And I would (laughs) laugh as they flailed their tiny arms. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow, it's got dark. Speaking of dark, we're here to talk about the end of the affair, Graham Green's uh, yes. Graham Green's novel. We're going to talk about part three in just a second. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you about the ways that you can participate in the conversation as well. We have the Facebook group. Head over to Facebook uh, search Close Reads Podcast in the uh, search bar, and you'll find us. You can join there if you have not done so already. If you have done that and maybe you haven't participated in a while, I recommend you head over there and join the conversation. It's lively as always. I haven't been participating much because I've been kind of distancing myself from social media lately just for my own mental health however that doesn't mean that i don't you know check out how things are going from time to time uh and things are uh you know lively as ever there is also instagram you can follow us at close reads pods and then we have the uh, newsletter close com. and if you want to email us it's close reads podcasts at gmail.com so there's lots of ways you can get in touch um tim I I forgot to check out check on you. Are you still in the basement or wh- wh- what's your situation now? Your um your living slash recording slash writing situation.
2: I returned back to my cottage two days ago, so we left the beautiful confines of Ballard in Seattle, and we returned back home. Um, Everything it's, it's great. like a
0: Jane Austen situation where you were staying at like the manor, and now you're headed back to your little cottage. It's very much like that because you're just a regular person. It's very, very much
2: like that. The only drawback to returning home is part of the small house fire was, of course, in the water heater closet. There's no hot water. And the oh. hot water So sure, wait, what were they yeah. doing this whole time? That is a that is a subject of great contention and frustration. Got it. Insurance. Mm. Insurance was doing insurance stuff. It large large bureaucratic insurance companies we're finding a way to save money. That's the, that's the very polite way of answering it. But it's been four weeks, right? Hmm. And it's going to be at least one more month.
0: Before you have hot water?
2: No. I think, I think Andrew and I are going to install a standalone hot water heater today.
0: But oh, okay.
2: their house- Your
1: hot yoga and your deer carrying on your shoulders?
2: And I'm gonna carry a deer, put it down, do the hot yoga, and then we'll do the installation of the of the but hot no water hot heater. Boxing, just so hot is but the, no hot boxing right? Is, we're gonna skip that.
0: Is the did you point it out that you're gonna put the deer down? Does that Im- suggest that once you're done with the hot water heater and the hot yoga, you're gonna pick the deer well, back yeah, up again? Or why was that? that detail thrown into this conversation?
2: Have <laughs> well, you just seen because the I didn't want to the
1: deer. No. He's following oh, like a tuxedo that, yeah. and he's carrying a uh, deer like slung so on t- his shoulder. There's a
0: whole yeah. thing here. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I still want to know are you going to pick it back up again when you're done with the hot water heater?
2: I'm going to pick it back up so I can clean it and roast spit it.
0: <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of roast spitting, let's talk about Graham Greene. Just go with me on that one. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah.
1: You don't get a nice <laughs> one. But.
0: So we're so we're talking about part 3. Um in part 3, we have left the perspective of the character who was, you know, for the first two parts, our protagonist, or at least the person whose head we were in, and now we're into somebody else's head. We are into uh, Sarah Miles's diary. Actually, um, there's a. I was I was thinking about how, if we wanted to, we could go on for a while about how uh, dark and sort of wrong it is that he's reading her diary in the first place. The book just accepts it, <laughs> um, but we get into 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 her head and and the the. The process, or I get, the process is the wrong word. the The story that 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 breaks out here in part three is the sort of spiritual journey of Sarah Miles. And I kept, re, I was as I was reading it, I kept thinking, man, this is like, you know, the the Graham Greene version of he just finished reading, like Surprised by Joy, or he just finished reading uh, Augustine's Confessions, or or um, Boethius, or something, and. So I got to thinking, as you were reading it, I guess, I, did, I guess I'm just curious what your experience was like. Do you find that when you read something like this, that's kind of about her spiritual journey, you find yourself thinking about books like that? Or are you wrapped up enough in the story itself that you don't find yourself going that direction? Or how, how, What's your experience like when you're reading something like this? Heidi, I'll ask you first, just because I can see your face and I just see a still picture of Tim.
1: <laughs> um, I... Uh no, this time I didn't. I I might have, I'm trying to think the first time I read this novel if I did that. I didn't this time. I'm so like I think this is one of the greatest sections in literary history. I I just think mm. everything about this is absolutely stunning and I get really lost in it. So I'm not making connections the way sometimes I uh, otherwise mm-hmm. would. I just am sure, like yeah. underneath it. Like I'm underwater in it.
0: So yeah, no, yeah, I
1: didn't yeah.
0: do that this time. It's just funny because, you know, sometimes you read stuff like this and it's so, you know, when you believe things deeply or you're very, you're, you care about your faith, for example, it's easy to get into like theological debates, you know, what, what theological point is Graham Greene trying to make in this part? Or is he trying to, is it almost like an allegory? Is he trying to make some greater theological argument for something? Um, and not that I was, you know, I'm, I'm able to shut that off, but I find myself, you know, wondering if that's what he was going for. Like, did he want us to make those connections? What do you think, Tim?
2: I, the thing that stuck out to me, and I was like Heidi, I did not, I was not thinking about Augustine's confessions or seven story mountain um but i did sometimes think about um sarah in this section is really preoccupied with the body she keeps talking Mm -hmm. about material like that the faith is a materialistic faith
0: yeah
2: um and, and i thought and that did seem because we've this is our first time hearing from sarah that did seem like an introduction of something new. And so uh, there were a couple of times where my kind of like theological mind was spinning in that direction. And that's what I was going to ask you about, David. Is that the thing that stuck out to you? The kind of like maybe theological preoccupation that, that showed up in this section?
0: <clears throat> I think the thing that stood out to me that made me think of, you know, Augustine and other works like that is the sort of um inner battle going on the sort of um yeah you know the raging against not raging is the wrong word the sort of you know not wanting to believe type scenario but you know despite everything finding that wait maybe i do (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and the sort of um the battle against it you know the and the way, the way, the, the way she talks, it, it, she talks about how it's like writing letters to, to God. That's kind of how it evolves, right? At first, it's these, these journal entries. And then it kind of evolves into where she's, she's uh, acting as if they're, they're letters. And so the way that she kind of is speaking to God and raging, I'll use that word loosely, but raging against him and raging against the faith that she seems to be being drawn into was what reminded me of it. It wasn't, I w- I wouldn't say it was like some kind of, you know, theological uh, point per se. So much as the the journey that she's going on, the way her her perspective is is changing, and how she doesn't want to have ha- happen to her what is happening to her. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I agree, and I think that Graham Greene goes to some pains to keep this section from becoming a an abstract theological. Yeah, a yeah.
0: treatise or something
1: yes like he he works really hard as a writer to keep the focus on the what's going on with sarah as a human being and the pain that she's in uh, on in my book i have um the penguin classics version in my book on page 77 it's uh, the letter is labeled 10th of july 1944 and this is when she sees uh richard the speaker out in the common the speakers were there again as they were in june and the man with the spots was still attacking christianity and nobody was caring I thought, if only he could convince me that you don't have to keep a promise to someone you don't believe in, that miracles don't happen. And I went and listened to him for a while, but all the time I was looking around in case Morris might come in sight. He talked about the date of the Gospels and how the earliest one wasn't written within a hundred years of Christ being born. I'd never realized they were as early as that, but I couldn't see that it mattered much when the legend began. And then he told us that Christ never claimed to be God in the Gospels, but was there such a man at as Christ at all and what do the gospels matter anyway compared with this pain of waiting around and not seeing Morris like this this whole section for her is never about belief it's always about her pain and her suffering and 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 her desire to be free of the the inviting love of God. Cause it just feels like oppression to her. And, and I love that about this section. I think that that's one of my favorite things is that Graham Greene is like, this is not about theology. I am not making a theological statement. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking about human suffering and love.
2: And she's preoccupied the things that she's preoccupied and distracted with are not, um, this or that theological point, the dates of the gospel, but whether or not Morris is going to show up. And it's the, it's the relational things in her life that are preoccupying her, not points of doctrine, not points of history, to your right. point, Heidi.
1: Yes. And she wants to be convinced to not believe for a long, long time, months and months. but. She just, she can't.
0: Mm-hmm. But she's asking, you know, she, she asks for pain though.
1: Right.
0: Um, so go back. I want to go back to what you said. You said you don't think that it's a section about belief. I mean, I Abstract get that it's not about
1: theological concepts, Yeah, It's not about
0: doctrine
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, you know, that's the word Tim just used. But how? What do you mean by that? That it's not about belief. You just, is that what you mean? It's just not about believing specific things.
1: Yes, not about. She's not wrestling with whether or not she's going to become a Christian, right? She's she's suffering. Like she's she's lost part of her identity. She's she's completely at sea, completely adrift in the world, and she can't find any pleasure in what she has. You know, in in the mud pl- pies in the slums, to use a referent, an outside reference to C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. she no longer she does not have any vision for the holiday at sea. But she no longer can abide with the mud pies in the slums. That's from the weight of glory for mm-hmm. our listeners, and yeah, um, and and she doesn't know what to do. She's lost in the desert, in between those two things, and that's what she's wrestling with—not whether or not she believes in God, although that's the question at hand, right? The the question at hand is, is God, is God make, do I have to keep a promise to someone I don't believe in? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So that's, but really what she's wrestling with is desire, unmet desire. And she, and she does not yet know that at least by the end of it, she does, but in the wrestling part, she doesn't yet know that it was God she was looking for the whole time. So she's trying to figure that out. So I guess it is about belief. But when I said that, I meant more like the abstract theological concept. The thing Richard is trying to persuade her against, Mm -hmm. she doesn't care about.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, the doctrine. Yeah. The list of the the sort of checklist. Apologetics,
1: right? Because he's a zealot in his own way, as she says.
0: Yeah. Yeah, apologetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah um we'll take a step back a little bit we'll talk keep talking about this because this section begin like structurally this is a very interesting section of course um because on the one hand it takes us through things we already knew about right it's you know the letters guide us through the scenes of you know parkas and stuff following them and he follows under the church he follows her to the house where Smythe is and all that so we already have seen the scenes and the and her journal her journal recollections tie it all together so that's in a really interesting way the way it reveals it is you know kind of it's a nice bit of uh, uh maybe subtle is not the right word but it's a nice bit of writing it's a nice bit of sleight of hand in terms of the structure but it begins in the middle of a letter it begins at the end and then comes back around again later and i wanted to get your opinions on why you think graham Greene did that at the end of part two my fingers aren't working turning the pages here the pages are sticking together well, Holding a microphone too. Um, He says, it was the last couple of pages I read first and I read them again at the end to make sure. It's a strange thing to discover and to believe that you were loved when you know that nothing is there for anybody but a parent or a God to love. So that's the end of part two. And then in part three, it begins with an ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. Anything left when we'd finished but you. We of course get that at the end. Why then do you think Graham Greene makes this very, um, you know, very specific choice uh, to, to bracket this section with those two journal entries. Why do you think we have um, Morris read them twice and then give it to us in the middle of that last letter? So there's two parts to this. Why bracket it that way? And then why does he begin it with that ellipsis in the beginning of the letter? Tim, let's start with the, start with the, the bracketing it that way. Why do you think he does that? This, the, the bracketing it with the, with the same letter?
2: Ooh, David, I didn't even notice that. I have to be honest. I didn't even notice that. I I don't know a good answer to supply. You want to give a bad one? I've given plenty of those. I hate <laughs> to like repeat that pattern. <laughs> yeah, you
0: don't want to get in a bad habit. Yeah, right. <laughs> how, do, how do what do you think?
1: It does have this schiastic structure or that, you know, the tail eating snake kind of thing, this section Mm -hmm. stands alone. Mm -hmm. Um, It begins as it ends. And yet in the beginning, we're reading it very differently than we are at the end. And the only clue that we have that she's talking to God here is the capital Capital Y that she uses in the pronouns you, Mm -hmm. um, which most Christians, most people of faith will recognize that as the language of prayer, the written language of prayer. Uh, but not everybody would recognize that, right? That's oh. something that could come back around. So you could begin this section thinking she's talking about Morris uh, or talking about the lover that he's afraid of, the mm-hmm. threat. And we find out in this section that she does have a lover, but it's God the whole time is the one pursuing her soul. So he was, Morris was right, but completely wrong at the same time. And, at the end of this section, we see the beginning part of the section completely differently. We read those prayers as, and I actually think that Tim's experience of not recognizing it speaks to its brilliance because by the end, she's been on this journey of conversion, reluctant conversion. And so, Unless you're paying attention, you might not even notice that it's the same prayer by the end, because mm-hmm. it feels so differently uh, to us. Because all we've known up to this point is Morris's kind of whiny, self indulgent, all the things we melodramatic, all the things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and now we get an actual conversion story that's so beautiful and profound and holy, and um, and and so this i think that that bracketing of these that same letter those same entries that structuring um uh, t- shows us how far we've come when we read it mm. differently at the end than at the beginning
0: mm. why do you think it begins with that ellipsis part 3 book 3 why do you think it begins in the middle of that letter
1: the earlier he's read some i mean just in terms of historically he's read some of that letter before Um, and so this, he's picking up where he left off. Um, but obviously there's a different, there's another layer of meaning to that, which is, (laughs) I think this is her, uh, her statement of true conversion. And he still considered, starts reading it as this is a threat from another lover. And by the end we see it was God pursuing her soul with his holy love all the time. It's Mm. really beautiful.
0: At the end of, um, part, Book Book three, part one, you know, right before he, she says um, at the end of that second letter, the one that, that is um, February 12th, 1946, it says, dear God, you know, I want to want your pain, but I don't want it now. Please take it away for a while and give it me another, and give it me an, another time. And then that's when he starts over. <clears throat> I was struck by something you said there th- that at first... Well, We don't necessarily know she could have been talking to Morris, or it could have been a journal, or it could have been whatever. But then by the end, she's she's talking to God, and here she actually names Him. The very end, she names Him. Um, and I was thinking about how you mentioned that the part that the first two parts really are Morris's sort of self indulgence, and then here, the while she is consumed by herself, the degree of selfishness changes so much, so. Are we supposed to... Do, well, do you think that this section is supposed to make us feel differently about Morris himself? Because on the one hand, I, w- I, was really, I was really surprised by this. Because on the one hand, it makes me care about him more, but also like him less, right? Because in the first part, you're in his mm. head. So you kind of learn to empathize with his, you know, his, his own mental issues, right? We all have our own you know, mental issues complications <laughs> our own spiritual you know problems from time to time and so you can read that and you can get Uranus head you can kind of empathize with them but you also recognize that he's got you know some issues here when you read it his selfishness is is um I think um made more distinct by her even though she's kind of consumed by her own spiritual problems uh, her own spiritual you know Frustrations and all that. She also is thinking about him first and not herself first, so often. Yeah. And so there's this, that comes like his selfishness comes into stark relief. And yet at the same time, it because she is so unselfish, it makes her kind of take over the novel almost as like the protagonist, the one you root for, the one who becomes like the central figure of the book, because she's a character who you sort of have more. Um, whereas you might have empathized with Morris in the first two parts, here I felt like I actually kind of like her you know like she's grappling with things that he's refusing to grapple with and there's a courage to that that draws his lack of courage in that area into stark relief as I said so I just found that I found that really interesting do you think that's what this part is supposed to do or is that just me and my experience with it I I think that she
2: I think the book does kind of become about her in this section, mm-hmm. she's changing. She's like, something is happening deep inside her. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing that Morris, um, we don't see any of that in him. He's this kind of locked character. The only thing we see in Morris is sort of like a desire to figure out what's happening and to get back together with Sarah, but unravel like no the mystery. Yeah, but no interchanges is happening, unlike with her. Mm-hmm. And I do see him, I, I do have a lot more sympathy with him because now I'm viewing him through her eyes and yeah, she exactly. genuinely loves him. Yeah. It's funny, you guys, I don't know if you felt this way, but before, like when I finished reading this section a couple of days ago, I thought about close reads and I thought, oh man, this section might be hard to discuss. And I thought, what are the reasons why? And I thought, because it does, it's so
0: personal. It's so... Well, you mean um, as in it brings out your everybody's kind of own individual responses because of their own I mean that. Yeah, I mean that. And I
2: also mean that it's it is about, we're reading a woman's diary.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, it, like there's something really intimate about that. And it's not just her diary about what she did this day or that day, but it's, it is about her conversion. It's about God coming after her. It's about her unwillingness and then her willingness. And, um, it it just, there's always moments there. I shouldn't say there are always moments. There are a few occasions on books that we've read where I felt like, um, what's the right metaphor like taking a sharp instrument to a living thing is the wrong thing to do. You know what I mean? And, (laughs) and I feel, I'm just speaking for me. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you guys do feel this way or even should feel this way, but it just feels like, um, yeah, I don't know. Literary criticism sometimes can be a weapon or it can just be sort of like a a tool for cutting something apart. And I think this section is so, it's so beautiful and it's so intimate that I've been kind of like shy about, I haven't known exactly what to say about this. And it's kind of funny because even in Augustine's Confessions, I think it's a great comparison, David. When you read Augustine's Confessions, it's easy to kind of latch onto the kind of theological disputes Whereas so much of the book are, is him praying to God and it's, you can like feel his inner self being pulled toward God, but it's just, at least maybe for me, maybe this is just kind of like a masculine thing. Um, It's so much easier to just kind of like attach onto the particular theological issue that he is wrestling with. And and so, and, of sin so you, in the pear tree,
0: right? Okay, so that allows you to sort of disconnect yourself from it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or, or and it's and it's something kind of like objectified that you can kind of like put on the table and have you know two, three, five people look at it and all say it. I mean, I'm I'm kind of this is a little bit of a confession. I just, um. I found before we got on close reads today, I was just like, gosh, this is going to be a little bit complicated because I, this section is overwhelming. It's, it's so, um, it is so poignant. And so half of me really wants to kind of dig into it. And the other half of me thinks, okay, by digging into it though, I don't want to destroy it. I don't want to cut it up.
0: Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense some I, I you know it's funny we can do some inside baseball here I suppose because I, I thought a lot about how to talk about this section for the exact reasons that you're talking about although I don't know yeah. that I was ready to name them the way that you just did but part of me was like maybe we should just do the whole let's each grab a passage that we like and just kind of enjoy it <laughs> you know like see see what yeah. happens when we talk about you know what is, I mean it might say a lot about each of us now that I'm thinking about it out loud the passes that we choose it might like it might be too easy to try to read into each other's choices. <laughs> um, so that's what you're struggling with, huh, Tim? <laughs> right. That was part of, you You know, like, is the thing that you choose going to be indicative of what your, uh, your own... Like
2: my inner turmoil, yeah. like what my inner self is is wrestling with in the, at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or something to do with your own spiritual journey or something like that. Right. So maybe we shouldn't do that, We you know, now that I've said that out loud too. But <clears throat> I, you know, I think there's no great, there's like, in some ways, I think that might be indicative of why this um or what we're talking about might be indicative of why this book has stood the test of time because there's no there's no easy way to just analyze or break down exactly what Graham Greene's doing here like you can look at this all through the lens of his Catholic faith you can look at it through the lens of confession or um, you know, you can look at specific scenes through a specific lens, like the scene where she sees the crucifix and is reflecting on that. And you could you could look analyze it through, you know, what we know about Green and his Catholic faith, and you know, you know his. Or you could look at the book through his own infidelities, or unfair. yeah. <clears throat> and so, but in a way, like it doesn't really hold. I mean, I guess it would hold up against that, but those things don't really hold up against the book.
1: It's not enough.
0: Yeah. And so I think that must be one of the reasons why the book has lasted so long, and some people consider it one of the you know great classics of the of the twentieth century. William Faulkner certainly certainly thought mm-hmm. of it that way. Um, maybe that's just you know what great books do, especially great books on topics like this. They just kind of resist um, they resist any kind of over, overly simplistic approach to to breaking it apart.: Yeah.
1: So I have a follow-up question to what you just said, Tim. Yeah. Is is that response that you have that, is it? Is it because, is it out of a sense of like personal discomfort with that kind of depth of examination of a human soul and what that might require publicly, you know, on a podcast? Mm-hmm. Or is it... Like a sense of respect as if we're like intruding upon the holy of holies.
2: Right. The latter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I just imagine um I'm trying to it's imagine someone actually going to confession mm-hmm. and like being in the throes of it. And then taking that out of the confession booth and saying, Hey, everybody gather around. Let's look at what she just said. It just feels, it just, that feels, (laughs) that would be awful. That'd be a terrible thing to do. And I totally understand what Graham Greene is doing is that's exactly what he's, he is making for his readership that sort of thing public um and that's part and it's part of what makes the book so powerful but i think i just got so connected with this section that the act of um close reading it it just made me feel like yeah like it was a little bit disrespectful and i get it I get all the problems with what I just said. Come on, Tim. This is a novel. This is you know.
1: I don't think that that's a problem at all with what you just said because I think that's the one of the things that novels do is that they they expose that exact thing that you're talking about that like hidden holy of holies, the inconsolable Mm -hmm. secret, as Lewis called it, in the weight of glory, which I've referenced now twice in this particular podcast. So, but. One thing that I, I think I had a different issue in thinking about talking about this. Yeah. I don't have a problem dwelling in that space at all. Like I'm for that all the time, like every day. Let's do that. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. But yeah,
0: You went to school for it.
1: I, I, I think <laughs> that this is the most human thing you can talk about. I would a thousand times rather talk about this than almost anything else. Well, um, what about the
0: last dance? Would you want to talk about Michael I Jordan? Would, Jordan
1: yes, but or... one of the reasons I love the last <laughs> dance was because I felt like I got there through it. Or like in a, in a, in a different context, but here's, <laughs> here's what I also think this sports is really cool. I get sports now. I'm, I'm really cool about
0: sports, sports. ball. Yep. Yeah. Sports ball. yep. It's now been, I'm just It's gonna been a big five weeks basketball. for Heidi.
1: Yeah, it has. It has <laughs> been a big five weeks for Heidi White. Um, but here's what I found difficult in thinking about talking about this section. Um, Here's my confessional. Do you remember when uh, that story about Beethoven and how he plays the piano and how he plays a piece and then someone asks him what it means and then he sits down and plays the piece again?
0: Yeah, very Flannery O'Connor of him. And Flannery
1: O'Connor, exactly. That was going to be my next example. And how she says, if you can say it in an essay, then write an essay, don't write a story.
0: Mm.
1: Like that is how I feel about this section. Like it's, this is so, this (laughs) The story of the reluctant convert who has who's in some mysterious paradox very deep self destructive sin is the thing that leads them to the kingdom of God in in just yeah. like this inverted paradoxical way that's completely mysterious that none of us can actually even what I just said I'm stumbling all over. Like I, You can't say it in an essay. You have to tell it in a story. And that's what Graham Green does. And that's what makes me hesitant to talk about this is like, I don't know what I would say because he says it so beautifully and I'm like all in.
0: But do you think that's why there's the inclination to, to read something like this through a sort of bio, you know, author's bio, biographical mm-hmm. mode where you're saying, you know, he couldn't have said this any other way. So is this sort of his confession? You know, and it's, you know, it's, it's like easy to, to, to think of it as, you know, not just her confession, but Graham Greene's confession or representative of his own experience or something like that. And so yeah. in some ways, that's like the easiest conclusion to draw. And so I think that, you know, that's why books, uh, writing like this often lends itself to that sort of interpretation because it's the easiest place to go. One, because it takes you outside of yourself, but also because it's just, I mean, in, in a way it's kind of lazy but also kind of like makes sense. Yeah, why why that's the inclination that people would take.
1: I do agree with that and I think that's what you get when you people talk about the catholic novel, right? This is the same exact dynamic happens in Brideshead. The same dynamic happens in Walker Percy when you <laughs> there's something so raw about the examination of human sin and redemption and and we don't know what to call it other than the catholic novel, right? <laughs> so uh, and, and then you start talking about doctrine and dogma and craftsmanship and Graham Green's personal life. And to your point, right. then you take that, uh, the tincture, so to speak, and separate it back into its parts instead of just letting it be this healing concoction on our souls.
0: Do you, do you find yourself in sections like this? Either of you, like, um... This is kind of a follow-up to what you're saying. Maybe it's obvious based on what you've said, but it wasn't to me, so I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> there, There's a lot of times in these sections where she'll stop and you'll get these w- questions that she's asking. Like, for example, in part two, she says, if one could believe in God, would he fill the desert? It's like these searching questions. Um, and you know they're kind of in between these reflections on... Morris and Smythe and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and then her own tell, telling her own stories. Do you, do you, is it fair to ask what role those questions green is trying to use? Like how he's trying to use those questions or is that the kind of question that you think uh, will destroy it? Like Tim, I'd love to hear. Cause you yeah. said, like, so he's doing, he's dropping these very specific questions in here. Oftentimes they're separated out into their own paragraphs even yeah my inclination is to say okay why is Graham green do that you know like what's the craftsmanship choice that he's making there like why is he trying to what is he trying to get me to see because he separates it out like if there's a there's something he's doing it purposefully but is that the sort of question that that um uh is uh, unfair to the it's like for, san- forbidden. Yeah, it's, it ruins the sancti- the sanctity of the according of the thing. to the
1: terms of this specific podcast <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that defies the name of the show.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, we do that all the time on this show, and it's like completely within bounds. Obviously, it it does seem, um, and I think that like discussing that is interesting. I I think what I'm groping to try to articulate is when she is wrestling with those questions, those, her pa- her path is true because it's the way that she is thinking about them. It,
0: um, like the questions are, are the, are the path. They are. They just,
2: they happen to be the one that God is using on her to, bring about a change within her so they're just kind of like they're almost like not they're not up for debate or dispute about whether or not they're the right questions to ask they are the right questions to ask which is not Mm -hmm. always so that doesn't mean that we couldn't talk about them of course we could of course we could and and we could like do our best to understand um why these kind of flowered up, why these particular questions or issues flowered up within her. Um, but I do think the kind of objectifying impulse that I just find myself wrestling with in this, that's another way of, of, of objectifying this deeply inner personal divine, divine, drive it's it's like i feel myself um wanting to kind of drift towards safe territory well and what, safe territory is like the objective territory
0: one of the things that i love about what you're doing here and like the way you're talking about this is the, is the sort of personhood that you are giving to this character um because you know it some people might say well it's just a character in a book so why is it have to be so saying why do we have to talk about it in such a you know I don't know, reverential, reverential way, way yeah, yeah, like that. We're making being a little too precious about it or something. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. love that you're like you're giving, like you're you're you you are giving a sort. You you are treating that the the character herself with with reverence too. It's not just the things she's talking about. Like you're you're trying to honor the soul of this character who you know. I mean, sure, in theory, maybe she doesn't exist, but even if she was based, she's a character in a book. We could all talk, you know, we could take the Josh Gibbs tact on that and discuss whether characters in books actually do exist and whether they're going to be in heaven and all that. (laughs) But, but, you know, I, but I appreciate that because it's, but because I was feeling the same thing, but almost in a different way. I was almost feeling like what I love to do when I'm reading something like this is not just to, well, I was very drawn by the moments when he's, when Green is creating character, not just when he's had, he's having her reflect on something theological and go through this like, dark night of the soul type stuff, but also Mm -hmm. the way he was creating a person out of her reflections, like he's making her so human. And so the craftsmanship of that is so interesting to me. Um, And so you're making me wonder though, if my preoccupation with the way green is creating character is, is unfair to the character herself or whether it perhaps uh, is, is not reverential enough. To what mm. she's going through. So, what do either of you think, think about that? Part of that is my inclination, you know, that I'm always thinking about that, you know, like yeah. books differently. But in this, is this the kind of moment where you would say, okay, David, I know that's your inclination, but maybe you ought to step back from your inclination and be more reverential about how you're reading it? Or can I make, or, or would I be okay to make the case that that's my own way of being reverent about what's going on here?
1: I'm like nodding, vigorous, vigorous nodding at the second thing. <laughs> so,
0: um, <laughs> okay, you you argue that and then Tim, for the sake of good drama, you argue the other way and tell me that I'm doing, <laughs> okay. it, doing it wrong. Okay, okay. So
1: do you remember, although I'm going to cheat right now, um, and... Quote Jesus. Um, when, when he says... Wait, wait, wait. I need yeah. to
0: see the flannel graph. You, you need to pull the flannel graph out from what yeah. you have over off to the side for your other Of course podcast. I have
1: a flannel graph and I'll get it in one minute. Um, when You're like
0: snapping <laughs> your fingers at your servant off, off screen. Yeah. Flannel graph, flannel right. graph. Yeah. <laughs> Give me the flannel Sorry. graph.
1: You mean my Go children? Ahead. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> When you said servants, <laughs> you meant children? Or they're yeah, the same I interchangeable. Got,
0: obviously, yeah. Um,
1: so... When Jesus says you should have, you should have obeyed the former without neglecting the latter, right? So that's, you should have tithed your mint and cumin while not neglecting to love your neighbor, or you should love your neighbor without neglecting to tie your mint and your cumin. And that, I think what you just said, the answer is yes, both. But the whole point of this novel, the whole point of this novel is that you can get to the former through the latter, Right? that she can find god through this disordered love the love is now needs to be properly ordered but it is like she says and your your point about morris earlier it is morris who taught her that jealousy and love can produce a redemptive effect like the demand that morris made on her to love him alone is one of the things that led to her conversion Henry's incredible duty to her and his faithful, steady presence in her life is, even though he was boring and all the things that Morris wasn't, was one of the things that led to her conversion. So you can find the former through the latter. And I think that that is part of the whole question of this book and why it actually is kind of scandalous one of the things that he's saying is that she finds God through having an affair Mm. and and that's that's actually pretty controversial Mm -hmm. so we should you know that's that's one of the things that she claims in this section but to your earlier question about the questions which I think Tim you're right that these are the necessary questions that Sarah has to ask. They're not a theological statement. It's, it's a human contemplation of the disordered inner life that she's saying, how do I reconcile all of these fragments with God? Mm-hmm. This, this pursuing capital L lover of my soul who's demanding from me exactly what Morris is demanding, but I love Morris and not him like that's that's her question, and that's a big question, and it does remind me, and I'm not this is not reductionist, I think it opens the book up like some of it it does remind me of the Catholic mystical tradition, the apophatic questioning tradition of asking what is what God is not? Mm. you know you can't name him, he's too big to be named like in the sense of of encapsulating who he is he overruns any limits so you can't necessarily say who god is but you can say what he is not right he's not this fragment he's not henry with duty without desire he's not desire without duty he's not richard who's reducing it to these abstract theological concepts but it's really just about his ugly face right? Like there's all of these pieces of God is not, and she can't actually say who he is, but that crowds out the who he's not eventually. And that's what motivates her conversion. And and that thing that's too big to name is the thing that only a story can tell, that an essay can't mm. tell,
0: right? Mm. The, I like the, the idea of the apophatic tradition and like negative theology, because this book has this constant uh, illusion or a constant image of being filled up mm-hmm. like god filling something that's empty or being empty she talks about that all yes. the time so I, I think that would be inconsi- uh, consistent with that okay tim your turn
2: i don't know that i could argue <laughs> terribly co- coherently so, uh, is the thing that i'm arguing <laughs> that david like by trying to understand the craft behind graham green's choices in this section you're actually kind of like Destroying the thing That we That, that most moves us in this book Is that what the argument that I'm supposed
0: to make it, Well I guess it, Do you think that if I'm Inclined towards you know A sort of metatextual read on The choices that Green is making As an author that I'm not being Reverent enough towards what the character is oh, going through Oh No No
2: I mean Sorry David <laughs> <laughs> Sorry man, like the yeah. way you read <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I'm emphatic that the reasons I was reluctant that I was like felt awkward in discussing this section it's like they have one hundred percent to do with with me. And I'm glad that you guys don't feel the way that I do, because otherwise we'd have a lot of crickets on the air,
0: and just become a read aloud podcast.
2: Yeah, that's what I felt like doing. What you suggested earlier that like maybe we should just take sections and read it. That's to me, I felt like that's a great solution because of reasons that I've mentioned. No, I think your desire to kind of understand the craft behind it is wonderful.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about how I find myself. So like that's that's one of the ways that I used to sort of enter into books is... To try to understand, like, how is this character being written? You know, how does the how Uh is the author able to create this character that is an individual person that's not just sort of an archetype or that goes beyond archetypes? So that's not just sort of, you know, some sort of wrote like you know paint by numbers type of character. And so the way that characters or the way that authors rather pull that off is so uh, there's something so mysterious about that to me. Like it's almost like they're making magic happen like a magic trick that when that really really gets pulled off and you you don't see the lines you know you don't see the yeah. smudges in the places where they were erasing and, and all that and then in the final version there's just this incredible real character that feels alive like that that is so mysterious to me that that's the thing that i think i'm most paying attention to when i read above all else and so when you have characters like this that are going through something so deep in a way i think it's probably not great for me because I, in a way I think it causes me to um, maybe not allow myself to enter into the the complex spiritual Mm. things that are going on there. Like maybe it's a way of uh, putting up a barrier to have to actually confess anything myself. I don't know. (laughs) Mm. Um, But, but I think that, you know, that magic is so um, spellbinding to me. That, that that's that's just yeah. how I read in general and so you know I, but I do but I do you know I was reading it wondering am I missing the point when I'm paying attention to that I mean I think that we all need to go beyond our normal inclinations when we read all the time like that's part of being a good reader is not just doing what you normally do um but also I think there's something to be said for the things that we are inclined towards when when we care about something and when we care about certain parts of books we can't care about everything equally <laughs> so knowing what right. we care about the most is probably a good thing yeah yeah. Heidi, were you going to say something? Um, you look like you want to say something.
1: Well, I probably look like I was going to say something because I was thinking about what you said.
2: I wanted to reflect on something that you said, Heidi, that um, the scandalous, one of the scandalous parts about this book mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. Graham Greene is suggesting that Sarah comes to God through this
0: affair. Mm-hmm. I call this the John Donne of it all. Why do you co- yeah. the John Donne of it all? Yeah, because he has, you know, these the the poems with the conceits where, you know, like his identifying like rape with, you know, and oh, with, oh, oh, oh. with um what's the
1: pursuing the, love of God, with, yeah. Yeah,
0: with the pursuing love of uh-huh. God. Yeah, that's the phrase. Yeah. It's it's
2: the notion that we could come to God through our own sin is something we see in like other books that we love and adore. Mm-hmm. Crime and punishment is like a murder is the impetus for this long what? Raskolnikov's mm-hmm. long journey. Uh-oh. <laughs> David, spoiler alert: um, Jean Valjean. Come on, <laughs> steals Jean Valjean steals. Yeah, you can skip it. Punchline: Jean
1: Valjean steals bread.
2: He steals, and that's or he steals the candlesticks, mm-hmm. and he yes, that's what like begins his turn. And so we recognize that. But what's scandalous, I think, about this book is the notion that it's because I think romantic love and because sex are so closely tied to like the deepest things in us, that's, I think, the thing that feels scandalous. Whereas the stealing of candlesticks is not quite... It's safer territory.
0: Isn't it strange that almost like a murder of an old woman brutally, and the, it feels less scandalous, scandalous. than totally than, totally than this is than their affair in this book yeah so like it's like the disorder is like there has to be a disorder for god to to create you know order out of her i mean I, I don't want to say there has to be that's like a I don't mean to say that god has has to have things a certain way <laughs> um go ahead, Heidi.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that you're, that is the scandal of this book that she, he is claiming, Sarah is claiming uh, that because of this, because of her love for Morris, she
2: mm-hmm.
1: found God. Mm-hmm. That's
0: her So claim. is the implication, so you know the line from, the, we talked about last week about how the sort of risque elements of this book had to be there for green to make his point i think we're talking about that now a little bit we you know without saying it but in do you know how there's the line where it says that you know henry wouldn't have known what was going on like he didn't know she says he wouldn't have known what the sounds were or whatever um do you think that 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 is why he is himself not drawn to things of a spiritual nature everything for him is just sort of about the intellectual exercise that he has he's not just as he is not drawn to he has no passion towards her he also has no capacity or well, i don't want to say capacity but he's also not drawn to things of the spiritual life is that what is Is the book implying that that's what's going on there
1: i think so yes i think i in the in that amazing scene in the church she's remembering when she's looking at the crucifix and contemplating what it means to have a body um in my book it's on the bottom of page 88 it's what's the what's
0: the the, the date?
1: references that they're talking about the church that she visited with henry the spanish church
0: what um, date is the letter or the the and, entry uh,
1: the 2nd of october
0: 1945
1: yeah. okay the, the, so they're they're visiting a church and she doesn't like the crucifix uh, and she says, when I came out into the plaza, I said to Henry, I can't bear all these painted wounds. Henry was very reasonable. He's always reasonable. He said, of course, it's a very materialistic faith, a lot of magic. Is magic materialistic? I asked. Yes. Eye of newt and toe of frog, finger of birth, strangled babe. You can't have anything more materialistic than that. In the mass, they still believe in transubstantiation. I knew all about that, but I had an idea that it had more or less died out at the Reformation, except for the poor, of course. <laughs> Henry put me right. How often has Henry rearranged my muddled thoughts? Materialism isn't only an attitude for the poor, he said. Some of the finest brains have been materialistic. Pascal, Newman, so subtle in some directions, so, su- so crudely superstitious in others. One day we may know why. It may be a glandular deficiency. So, leaving aside how hilarious it is that he's his claim of materialism, he's reducing to a glandular deficiency.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first that, read that, I was like, that's a weird way to bring time to bring Paul Newman up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Modern. <laughs> um, that here is we see him doing exactly what you just said. He's in the presence of the wounds of Christ and he's. Mm-hmm. He, he puts an, a, a name on it, right? It's materialistic. which yeah. har-
0: <laughs> He doesn't have the eyes for the, or the capacity yes. to have any passion towards it or feel anything. Exactly.
1: And her discomfort, her hatred even is closer to God than to his bloodless reaction. Uh, and that is so key to the heart of this book. So key to it. You
0: know, That strikes me that, you know, this is a, this is a flashback. And what we're seeing here is that at least she has the capacity to be for lack of a better term, or maybe this is the right term. She has the capacity to be aroused by Mm -hmm. what she sees there. You know, her, there's a, there's a spiritual capacity in her to to respond to it. Like the fact that she doesn't like it suggests that she has the capacity for what's going to happen later on. But Mm -hmm. it also his inability to see it as anything more than like, you know, Materialism with because of a glandular, of, de- and evidence right. of a glandular deficiency, is also you know that suggests everything you need to know about their marriage as well, right? And why she goes elsewhere in search of it, in search right. of you know someone who's not going to you know limit every bit of passion to a glandular deficiency.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and we get keys in this section to some hope for Henry, and it always yeah just always comes down to love right it doesn't do you have the capacity to love something beyond yourself are you willing to die to yourself for the sake of another it's it's that Like when he asks her to stay will you stay with me mm. that is to his salvation as well as hers and yeah. it's I, I, just, I just love how green it's, does that. You know, this here's where yeah, I start stumbling of over the words. The question say, itself is a confession. Yeah. Yes. Yes. To ask someone not to leave you is a very vulnerable. When you know you have failed mm. them is very vulnerable. Mm. And it's so like, that's what it always comes down to. But then in these Catholic novels and these books that are like love is the answer. And it sounds so cheesy and I'm not talking about the Beatles, but the idea of loving something beyond yourself is is to all of ourselves. Yeah, I don't think
0: that's what the Beatles meant.
1: No, it's not. <laughs> it's
0: so, cute. but doesn't doesn't that moment explain the thing that you were having with having a problem with last week about Henry? Yeah. When you were like, why does he respond? Why does he not respond? Like why doesn't he punch Morris or why doesn't he actually respond? And Tim and I were like, I don't know, it kind of works. But this this explains that, doesn't it? Like he recognizes, his that response that he has to both Morris and to her is his confession, his recognition of his own huh. foibles, his own flaws, right?
1: Yeah, that's probably so. I I think you guys did help me understand that because both of you, I think the thing that helped me even more than anything understand that was... That's exactly unified what you front. said, although that was helpful. The unified front. Yeah, just that both of you were like, Yeah. And I'm like, I I'm just such a fighter, I think. So Well, do
0: you, but okay, yeah. so do you think it's possible though that what you wanted it was for him to fight for her?
1: Yes. Yes. So like it's yeah. not so much
0: that you're a fighter, it's that you know, you want the yes. man to fight for the for the wife. Like to,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I can't understand. The I still I still don't completely like I can't get behind the eyes of like s- not punching your spouse's lover right in the face if given the chance like I'm I, I can't quite.
0: Well, it's get, the same like, inability, like the inability to punch him. It's the same person who also has never yes, like wouldn't actually, recognize the
1: sounds yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean it's the same guy we're talking about here. So yeah,
1: fair, fair enough. Thank and you for filling in my ellipsis there. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> thank you
2: for. <laughs> you guys are on fire. I love this. I'm just kind of like warming. I'm just warming my hands on this.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so that I mean it does make sense to me. I think that I can't relate to it so much. And I'm not married to someone who would ever respond that way. So, but I think that it helped. And I had forgotten about this scene. So I I I had forgotten that this scene happened mm. at all. Yeah, I mean,
0: books do, you know, yeah. bloom a little more as they go throughout their yeah. like a fine line. Whatever is. the yeah, exactly. Exactly. They
1: open up.
2: You know one thing about the section that you just read, Heidi, was how easy it would be for Sarah to be angry at Henry for um, kind of slipping into his, you know, mode of explaining and yeah, some are quite materialistic (laughs) and, you know, Sarah, there's so much happening inside Sarah that it would be very easy for her to just lash out and be, listen, you paint by numbers accountant. I am, you know, but the fact that she like actually compliments him in a way, and I don't think it's sarcasm when she calls him, um, when she says he was very reasonable, he's always reasonable. I, I kind of read that as like, no, that's actually begrudging, not even begrudging respect. That's, it, it seems genuine. And so here we are in, the, in this, experiencing this turn alongside Sarah. And as she's turning toward God, her attitude is also softening and warming toward Henry Hmm. right Hmm. yeah
1: and she's also at the same time to add the paradox to that because you're absolutely right wrestling with rage, like anger at him through this section because he's so disappointed like when, when she had a passionate lover she could treat him with kindness and tenderness because she didn't require anything of him Yeah, but now that he's all she gets
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, she's made her bed mm-hmm. quite literally and has to lie in it. Then she yeah. now now she has now he becomes important to her. Now he produces a reaction in her, and that's really painful for her.
0: Yes. Can we talk about Smythe briefly? Yeah. Because there's the there's the scene, a very strange scene in a way, where he uh proposes to her and he not unlike uh henry in his own way sort of begs her for her you know commitment i guess um and then the the mark on his face becomes something that she um has compassion on really so uh, this is probably the scene that most mystifies me i guess in in the first three parts of the book where she says i felt sick for a moment because i feared deformity he sat quiet and let me kiss him and i thought i'm kissing pain and pain belongs to you as happiness never does i love you and your pain i can almost taste metal and salt in the skin and i thought how good you are you might have killed us with happiness but you let us be with you in pain um so help me understand i I this is the i just have a hard time with this section like like the the individual action of kissing him on the cheek and like the way he responds to it and all that this is sort of like my why does henry respond not respond what's called why is this the the response they have um i suspect i'm not the only one who if we didn't talk about this would remain a little bit mystified by it. Do either of you have a can either of you help me with this section?
2: David, is the is are you asking specifically why is she why does she kiss him? Or is it well yeah there is
0: there is that but then also um well let's start there. Let's start there. Let's do this one thing at a time. (laughs) Why so why does she why does she kiss him there? Um and and oh I'll just okay full stop question mark. I did yeah. answer the question. <laughs> <I> <laughs> or will, Tim.
1: gladly. Um, so, <laughs> and like you guys last week were like, well, yeah, this is my, well, yeah. This is, so his blemish on his face is the equivalent of her affair with Morris. It is the thing that both is the conduit to God and the ultimate obstacle to God. It's, it's a blemish on the image of God. So it's probably, I would say this blemish on Smythe's face is maybe the most allegorical, directly allegorical element of the story in mm-hmm. my interpretation. Um, it, it seems pretty straightforward. And in her kissing it, she is loving the blemish and inviting him to experience love which is the thing that he's missing, right? That's what he's both raging against and most desperately desires. The same way that Morris feels about Sarah, the same way Sarah feels about Morris. The same, this, it's just a, all these people who mm-hmm. have this blemish uh, that is there both their path to God and their obstacle to God. And it's up to them to decide that.
0: Maybe it's just the direct. Allegorical nature of it that seems not in keeping with the rest of the book that was throwing mm-hmm. me, it just maybe it seems a little bit too allegorical for 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 yeah,
1: I think that's fair, probably. and I said i think i I think I said on the air I know I've said to, to both of you that there's some elements of this story that derail a little bit for me, and as we get to the end of the book, that's what I'll be talking about specifically about that
0: tim do you do you agree with me or, or do you th- do you think that this, that, that moment works uh, within the framework of the book?
2: I think it works. I, it, it feels a little bit thin. I mean, we're talking about, and we all think this is a really great novel? Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the thin parts to me, not because it doesn't, not because it's not germane to the story or thematically like unified, you know, all those sorts of things. I think it is, but for some reason it does feel a little bit inserted. I mean, I, Okay, I'll just read a little section. Um to expect you this is Smythe speaking to Sarah. To expect you to love a man with this. He turned his bad cheek toward me. You believe in God, he said. That's easy. You're beautiful. You have no complaint. But why should I love a God who gave a child this? He's talking about the scarring on his cheek. Do people actually feel that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that the, can I buy, that's the reason why he's kind of manufactured this whole like inverted cathedral of um, rejecting God. I can buy that also. For some reason though, um, it feels thin and maybe just because we just don't know Smythe that well.
0: Yeah. Maybe it's just not quite earned enough. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, maybe part of the problem for me is I just don't. That being laid out here as the, as the impetus for his rejection of God and the, the, the degree to which he's rejecting God and become so passionate about it. Like, if you told me that his parents, you know, that it was a Keats situation, both his parents died of tuberculosis when, they, when he was like five and he mm. grew up like in a Dickensian orphanage and went through all these experiences. Mm. I'd be like, okay, yeah, I can see that. Multiple he has <laughs> Yeah, he has a rough, he has a rough birthmark. Um, and like, he's now, re- his whole soul is rejecting you know, everything about God. That does, that, that seems like a bit of a reach to me. So maybe I'm wondering is so, is there just more to it though? Or maybe Green really is just trying to like, maybe he wanted, maybe he, maybe he felt like he needed to have a really direct allegory that was obviously graspable within the story. I,
1: that's my, that's my sense of it. But maybe I'm missing something too. I, I think that this whole storyline, is a bit forced, although I think it serves an important part in the narrative. Uh, for Sarah, we, we do need that grounding that she's not asking abstract theological questions and that's what he provides. Um, and But the birthmark thing does feel a little bit too on the nose. Um, but kissing the birthmark didn't. Like if we're going to have a birthmark, either. that's yeah. how I felt like if you're going to have like a birthmark that represents the blemishes on our soul, you got to have her kiss it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was it's thinking, gotta be done. It, I was, it has to be done. I was thinking about how if you were doing it in a movie, you almost could downplay the sort of melodrama of it because you could just have her sort of he's asking her and then to you know to marry him, and then he's like, Oh yeah, but you don't want me because of my birthmark, and then she just kind of like kisses him, and then he's like, No, that's pity, go leave. You know, you could downplay all the melodrama that's that she's expressing in the scene and make it seem more naturalistic than I think Green manages to pull off in the moment. Mm-hmm. Cause she could just, you could kind of have her just kind of be like, thank you for everything. You're kind of a nice guy. Here's a kiss on the cheek, which would then be in stark relief to what he actually wants. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, who are we to, you know, over criticize Graham Green, right? We just have a podcast. Fair so <laughs> actually let me say that again. We have a podcast. We can criticize Graham Green. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably move towards wrapping this up. Do either of you have any final thoughts on this section? Um, we- you guys, I've got a lurker
2: in my backyard. I'm going to go check him out real quick. Sorry. I, I think I know what he's up to, but you just got to check out a lurker. Hang on.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> are we leaving this part in or are <laughs> we taking it out? Or are we?
1: That's entirely up to you. I'm kind of into it. Do you want to make up a story about the lurker? <laughs>
0: Yeah, we should have just had him sit here and narrate.
1: <laughs> He's probably just trying to deliver a package or something.
0: That would be pretty funny. It's just a, the guy's wearing a UPS uniform, and Tim's like, oh, "There's a lurker a in lurker. the backyard." I'm reading Chesterton. <laughs> that's definitely. Okay, I'm lurker. back. I'm back. You guys,
2: this is such great theater. Remember how I told you that, like, the insurance company yes. was?
0: Yes, that's that's the was, story that I was that was just an insurance
2: at. man. That mm-hmm. was an insurance man.
1: What was he doing? I
2: th- he was taking photographs. Checking mm. the water heater. Um well, he's on the outside of the building. So I, <laughs> he's
1: a private detective. His name is Portis. Porcus.
2: Parkus.
0: Parkus. Parkus. We'll get there. <laughs> <You> Porcus. <ran>. <laughs> Porcus. <laughs> His name is Porcus. I love it. I love it. Close
1: reading. It's my speciality.
0: <laughs> so you guys want to hear about a story that I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to write, I'm going to write. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be about um these this couple the insurance photographer. It's going, to, it's going to be about this couple who um they're actually married or together or whatever but they go around to sporting events and they they do the fake kiss cam thing to fool people. So yeah. like you get on the kiss cam and then he like gets down and he proposes and then she's like, "Oh, yes." And then they get like free tickets and free swag and stuff like that and they go around doing that over and over again. And um, I'm going to, the characters' names are going to be Connie and Floyd <laughs> instead of Bonnie and Clyde. Perfect. So it's going to be like a 21st century Bonnie and Clyde. They go around and like.
1: What's their secret he-? life? Do they have a secret life or is that their secret life?
0: Do you need more of a secret life than that they're going around pretending that they're not married and getting free swag from hockey games? I mean, come on. No,
1: I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> I just also think they should be murderers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you want them to actually be Bonnie and Clyde? Well, no. So uh, obviously, the guy's going to be an insurance guy who goes around taking pictures, scoping out, you know. Sco- I love it.
1: Connie and Floyd. <laughs> Floyd. How old are they?
0: Probably like 20. And they're 20. Yeah. They got to be young. Yeah. I mean, and they're, they're, just they're just swag scenes. They're just swag. They're getting like free tickets. They can get enough of that swag. Uh, yeah. They're getting like, well, you know, it's like social media currency. Mm hmm.
1: Do they get recognized and get caught?
0: Well, I figure like eventually they got to start wearing like masks. They got to like start dressing up and having like disguises and stuff like that. Like she cuts her
1: hair and yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they
0: have like big glasses and mustaches and, you know, (gasps) there's like stuff like that that they're doing to... Gold tooth. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, any number of, there's any number of possibilities, you know. This That sounds fun. I could get on, I can, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so... Well, we're about, we should probably we're, okay. uh, we're wrap up here. So, all right. So, we're almost done here. So, any final thoughts um, from either of you on this section as we lead into section four of The End of the Affair?
1: I have so many more thoughts. So, I'm, <laughs> I, you just, this is a bottomless section. There's no end to the thoughts. Um, so, buckle up, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs>
0: Why don't you just why why don't you just record us a video afterwards we'll do it as like a bonus Heidi Nobody monologues would watch that video I just, that's probably <laughs> yes. not true there's at least 4 people on the facebook group four who would watch whole it
1: people thank you yeah. to my 4 people who would listen to my random thoughts um i i get so lost in this section like i said that coming to the end of it and turning the page i forget that this isn't the whole book. This feels—it's so compelling. This section, but it's a—it's a series of journal entries, and so the next question has to be: How in the world is Morris going to respond to this? What kind of impact will this make on him? And moving forward, that's the—that's the question.
2: You—it's—I. That's my exact going forward chief preoccupation because morris could read have read the diary and thought oh my gosh she really loved me that whole time or he could be filled with kind of like a mad rage that this god who she's not supposed to believe in is stealing her from him from him or go in some other direction also right
0: so you're saying it's one of it's it's one of two options, or it's anything else in the world, or it's a
2: multitude of different <laughs> options. But I think, like, w- how he's going to respond is what I'm. Uh, I'm yeah, really right. curious about that too.
0: Oh, I just have so
1: many more thoughts. Okay, David, what's your final thought?
0: <laughs> I uh, my final thought is I want to see, um, I want to see if Parkus shows up again, because I'm I was really interested in the uh, the whole the the theme of. Following and watching and spying and all that sort of stuff that shows up um, in this book and 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 what it, how it how it plays into the ultimate conclusions and, and and the way the relationships wrap up and things like that. Green obviously wrote his share of you know entertainments as he called them. He wrote his fair share of spy novels, so it was something that was on his mind. His brother believed himself to be a spy at least. Um, it was a family thing, and so it, it's not surprising that it shows up uh, in a book like this, but I, you know, I want to get a better sense of what is Green trying to say about that, that notion in terms of the, the, the spiritual life and how the characters are moving towards some sort of, uh, inner harmony. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he brings it up because in this section, he, you know, he has this, the previous scenes where Parkers was following her, he, she relives those scenes here and even talks about how she saw him. And then there's the scene where she follows, she even follows Morris right. through the streets. And so it kind of gets inverted. So it keeps coming up. So I want to see how Green resolves that theme, you know, weaves it back in in the final, the final two parts of the book. All right. Well, anything else? Anything else that needs to be said? How do you, you can, anything else you just need to say, like you're just, you're going to feel like...
2: I am really curious what's, Heidi, will you are there things that you can bring up in the next podcast?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes.
0: Okay, good. So next week the agenda is Heidi point number one, Heidi point number two, Heidi point number three. We respond Heidi Heidi, point number four. (laughs) Please don't do that. Tim responds, Heidi point number five. We run out of time, but keep going. We get two more points from Heidi. Tim gives a final thought and then we leave. That's gonna be next week's agenda.
1: I don't see you writing that down. Her. Oh, do I'll, I'll no. definitely remember
0: it. Tim <laughs> and I will definitely remember that that's the agenda.
1: <laughs> I do really love this book.
0: Despite your uh, questions about the end, huh? Yeah. Which we'll get to. Yes. Hey, Graham Greene had, Green had his complaints about this book too, which we'll get to as well. So he, he, he had... Uh, there were things he wished he did differently and we'll talk about that. So <laughs> that's another thing to watch out for. If you were Graham Greene, what would you wish that you did differently? <laughs> Um all right, well, Heidi, Tim, Tim, don't let the insurance guy steal your stuff. Um, although maybe on the other hand, you if it's anybody to steal your stuff, the insurance company stealing it would be the ones that would probably be I most ideal.
2: You know the whole kind of like Hannah Arendt's banality of the evil thesis? Yes. This is like happening in the backyard. These two <laughs> middle-aged guys are walking around with cameras and you're just like I guess it's your right to be here, but get out of here. Cause we know what you're trying to do. It's so
0: weird. <laughs> you should like scare them, surprise them, do something, you know, do you, you happen to have like a trap door?
2: I don't have a trap door, but what I do have is, um, I could take my hat off and just let them see my hair, my COVID <laughs> hair, my COVID work. no hot water heater hair.
0: Like this seems like a Woodhouse thing where like two people are walking around a cottage and a guy with COVID hair sticks his head Oops out the out. window. Ah! Run! Run! That's <laughs> how they get rid of the. That's how. That's how Jeeves gets scared back down the... This. This. I feel like I'm just rehashing a plot of a story.
1: <laughs> and there's a cow creamer, and our pets' heads yeah. are falling off.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And in the end, it's all gets. It's all fine because of Jeeves right. and whatnot. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, I guess we're done. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and uh, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Until then, happy reading.